I have this line written in my notes, which is, as one of the soldiers is explaining in the trial what he saw when he was in no man's land and what he was responding to and what he was trying to do and how he came to the decisions that he made, the court has no concern with your visual experiences. It seems to me another one of those arguments for this is why movies matter, this is why fiction matters, is that the experience of the individual and what the individual sees is actually of great significance. The characters in Paths of Glory are haunted by their nightmarish equivalence with animals. In its most hysterical iteration, this epiphany can be seen in Corporal Paris's comparison of himself to a cockroach. At its most intellectual, it is expressed in Dax's closing statement, which begins, There are times I am ashamed to be a member of the human race. Yet if the soldiers of the 701st Regiment are animals, their behavior is less that of ants than of squirrels. Being mammals, they at least have the intelligence to realize when their cause is hopeless and retreat. This is the irony of the General Staff's decision to attack an objective everyone knows to be impregnable, and it is the irony that structures the General Court Martial that follows the collapse of the attack. Such an attack would only make sense if undertaken by insects or robots. Colonel Dax's closing argument at the end of the court-martial, as he mentions that no stenographic record is being kept, Kubrick's use of space reminds us that this was an actual room we have to imagine. discuss films, literature, and culture in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Tonight, Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, starring Kirk Douglas and Jean-Pierre Genet's A Very Long Engagement, starring Audrey Tattoo. We'll be talking about mutiny, murder, self-mutilation, military justice, all manner of executions, record-keeping, and revenge. Once again, we'll be digging into the First World War, and inevitably, we will consider fascism. So we're going to talk tonight primarily about Very Long Engagement and Paths of Glory, two of my favorite World War I movies, and two movies that are so of their era. The one is like so classic 50s, like, this is a film, Hollywood film, you know? And then the other is very much like early 2000s. We're an indie French movie, French movie, right? And in my opinion, both do what they're doing incredibly well. And both are dealing with this issue of when you as a person are stuck in this giant and amoral or potentially immoral death machine. What are your responsibilities? What should your actions be? What can you do? And what happens when you fuck around? I think for reasons that might be obvious to some viewers, these are both movies of their era the late 50s and the early 2000s. 
to my mind, they're both very good movies and they're historically accurate in interesting ways, though perhaps not in absolute ways. They're both based on successful popular novels of the war, neither of which I've read, but I think that's also part of the proof of how good these movies are that, as always, surely they differ from their novels, but I don't recall ever hearing complaints about them failing to live up to the novels. Generally speaking, the novel tends to be better than the movie, but they probably did a good job as far as I could tell. I think they're certainly great movies. Let me just ask about your literacy in terms of the film historical context of these movies. Are, are you guys familiar with, for example, Audrey Tatou? Did you ever see the movie Amelie? When I was your age, literally every woman in college, maybe they didn't think that Amelie was the greatest movie ever, but some of them did. And, and all of them had seen it and all of them loved it. And it was like so cool and so charming and so French. And that was sort of uh, Audrey Tatou and this director's breakout film. And some of the stuff that's going on in a very long engagement is sort of riffing on a bit of the stylistic elements of this. When I call it like a very aughts indie movie, I guess like the American equivalent might be Wes Anderson. So obviously it's not like visually similar to Wes Anderson, but it has this sort of indie structure to the film, the way that it uses narration and the way that it shifts back and forth in time, the way that it sort of is flippant about the way that it reveals certain details of the plot to me is not necessarily like similar to Wes Anderson, but if we look at a Wes Anderson film and a film like this, we can say, oh, this is sort of a style of filmmaking in the early 2000s that seems to be internationally relevant for whatever reason. What about Stanley Kubrick? Anybody, anybody big on Stanley Kubrick? Oh my gosh. Okay. They had Fear and Desire on Amazon and I just watched it for fun the other day. Fear and Desire is so fucking weird and nobody knows about it. And I kind of love it. I mean, it's, it's really bad in certain ways, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> but, I, mean, but I, I do love yeah. it. You have to remind yourself that this is like literally, His I can first. make a movie. I swear to God, you know, in some ways he's like disrupting the whole concept of a war movie, but yeah, you got some pretty cringy stuff in there too. It's good for his first. I mean, effort. But it was kind of fun to, you know, watch something not many people that I associate with, yeah. you know, know about. I would say Stanley Kubrick, he's also one of those like perfectionists who would like, I don't think he actually wanted people to see Fear and Desire once he'd made a few really great movies. No. And that kind of explains why it's just like stranded there on Amazon. And it's like, yeah. you could watch this if you want to. <laughs> have, fun. Yeah, have fun for an hour. No, I read the notes that are included with the film and it said multiple times that he did not want people yeah. to see this film. I think he had it deliberately buried, but there's still one existing copy in the Kodiak archives. So. It's a movie that I don't know how much you've seen of World War II movies, but it's a movie that makes a lot of sense if you've seen the like classic 40s, 50s World War II genre films. And then you can kind of see it as on the one hand, trying to do it on a low budget and then on the other hand maybe deconstructing the, the concept mm -hmm. um, so it yeah i think it's best viewed as like a sort of art school movie you know like mm -hmm. i'm trying to figure out what i can do of course kubrick's i guess more famous full metal jacket is usually considered his more important work but that gives i think maybe you a sense of how the war movie viewing crowd is reflexively right wing and then of course you get dr strangelove 
In Paths of Glory, we see a lot of Kubrick developing his typical style that we see in a lot of his movies. And some of that stuff ends up getting borrowed into 1917. And you'll get the fanboys in the comment section on 1917 being like, Sam Mendes didn't invent anything. Kubrick was doing the long tracking shot down the trench in 1957. And I guess that if we're thinking stylistically, we might ask the question of, is this just a good way to shoot a trench? Like, do you go down the line and you see the trench, whether you're in front of the character or behind the character or moving across face after beaten down face of soldiers? Or is it something that we have to credit to Kubrick? I have to confess, I didn't even think that deeply about it. I just thought, well, yeah, that's how you shoot a trench. You know, that's a good way to do it. Well, and as we watch these early movies, we'll discover this where something that we think of as, oh, well, that's how you do it. Somebody had to invent it at some point. Right. Like we have things going on in the big parade that to us just seem like, well, it's a war movie, of course, right? But somebody had to invent that, whether that was the writer or the director or the actor decided to do a certain thing a certain way. And we'll see that, sadly enough, in Birth of a Nation, where we get things like the intercut or the chase scene which are uncomfortably linked to racist violence. But we just think of it as a way that you shoot a movie. You may want to start with the plot of Paths of Glory. Does it seem obvious? Does it seem surprising? And this is a novel that's published in the 30s at sort of what we might call the height of the pessimistic anti-war novel. And then the film is made in the late 50s, which is quite a different political context. It seems quite intense and quite backstabby, which I'm surprised by. Can Um, you explain backstabby? Just not wanting to come under fire for their stupidity, so they just scapegoat other people. So you're saying General Miro's behavior is very backstabby? Yeah. I think in many ways, General Miro feels like a caricature, but actually he very much represents the old school of warfare in the First World War, certainly in the French army, but in many cases in the other armies as well. The idea being that, well, you can take the objective. All you have to do is you have to have the will to do it. And if you're not doing it, then there must be something wrong with you. You might say it's an unwillingness to confront the material realities of technology and landscape. Some positions can't be taken or they can only be taken at tremendous cost. I'm not even thinking about that. When I think about this movie, I'm not really surprised by it. There's obviously moments that are meant to shock the audience, things like that. I would actually say the movie that shocked me more, especially in the beginning part, was a very long engagement, but obviously we'll get to that. I have to say the first, I think, 10 minutes are a full-on visual assault. I kind of love it, and I kind of hate it. That is the difference between mid-20th century aesthetic and a 21st century aesthetic, right? That in a very long engagement, the director, Jean-Pierre Jeunet, is just beating us over the head with how completely awful this situation is for soldiers and what they're willing to do. And we get, I think, six different capsule biographies all leading to them either accidentally or intentionally injuring themselves. Yeah, so that they won't be in this next attack. And then with the high command's response to this, how they're going to deal with insubordination, how they're going to deal with mm-hmm. self-inflicted wounds. Whereas in Paths of Glory, we have that long, slow build 
even starting with the historical description of like, what is the first world war? Oh, well, they've been in trenches forever. And it's like, come on, we know this stuff. All to get to the premise of the anthill. It's a top down versus a bottom up aesthetic. Kubrick doesn't do it that way because he wants you to see the world from the top down. He wants to show you how the generals think that leads them to their moral failure. He shows the system. I think you see that in Kubrick's work very frequently. Certainly his war movies, you see a system more than you see individual characters. The individual characters stand out from within that system, but you see that system from the top down. And you see that structurally with the way that he plays with that very old school style of the narration. And you see it within the way that he composes his shots with these medium and sometimes long shots where you're standing back from the characters in these large echoey rooms as the generals discuss what their plans for the next attack are. And then moving closer into what does it look like in the trenches to visualizing the enemy position of the anthill through the periscope and then ultimately to the attack itself. But that sort of set of layers from the top down and then from the bottom back up, it produces a sort of sense of irony. It to me is a very modernist concept and it's quite different from that automatic postmodern framing that you get in a movie like A Very Long Engagement where you have multiple different characters, multiple different stories, different lives, different plot lines, and we're going to cut very quickly through each one to show you how these people end up in this situation. And in each case, it's moving from the bottom up, from this ordinary person who didn't have to be in a war, ends up in a war and ends up doing this or that and the other thing, and they all end up in the same situation. And then from there, we go all the way back, you know, where we get the systemic viewpoint we see perhaps ultimately in like the archives, of like, well, what happened to these men, right? It's a different approach aesthetically that comes from being produced in different periods. By the time Kubrick's making Paths of Glory in the late 50s, modernism is no longer like a cutting edge thing. It's just like, this is the aesthetic of film, right? He's executing it on a very high level. And similarly, by the time that Genet is doing a very long engagement in the 21st century, postmodernism is also not a cutting edge thing. It's just a way you do a movie. Lots of different plot lines. You can shift around, move around within your various frameworks to tell a story. Let's talk about a very long engagement if we felt like we identified with that a little bit more. It, it was shocking. Yeah. I mean, I think it says something when we've watched and talked about and read about all that we have to see a First World War movie, movie about a topic that we feel like we know something about, and for it to still actually be able to shock us. That is saying something. I like that it focuses on Matilda. I like that it's a different perspective. That was refreshing. I especially appreciate the feminist perspective of that. When the film takes place, that it's it would be more traditionally focused on the men that are defending the country and are usually put on the spotlight, but here they're talking about the fiancé, which I really like. Well, and we see many women in this film. Obviously, Audrey Tattoo's Matilde is the main character of the film, but we get Jodie Foster as Elodie Gord. Mm-hmm. We also have Marion Cotillard as Tina Lombardi, the Corsican lady of the night, who then executes a vendetta against her man's yeah. killers. 
one of my favorite parts of this movie, and it's so random, she's just head to toe black. The guy is obviously waiting, but here she whips out this gun, but of course she has to spit in it before she shoots the thing above his head. That to me was like, Yes! She shoots the mirror over his head and then the jagged pieces of mirror. If that's not badass, I I don't know what is. It's really wild. She's stabbed to death by a million shards of mirror. His reaction is so funny because he's like, oh, okay. And then he's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. I can think of that on a few different levels. Like one comes to mind that there's a sort of offhand army joke that's popular in this period, popular in the First World War and probably the Second World War, maybe even still now, who knows? Generals die in bed. (laughs) (laughs) Which is is to say that, like, you know, the guy who orders you to go out and die, he's not going to go out and die on the battlefield. He's going to die in bed as an old man. And this, here we see as an old man, him dying in bed, but being murdered in bed, uh, and with good reason. Right, with good reason. There's also something in that that, to my mind, goes to any number of really Baroque killing scenes that we see in mid and late 20th century European cinema. We saw some of this in Novacento and actually didn't talk about it because there was so much other stuff to talk about, like the, the absurdities of like impaling on a gate or swinging a child around and bashing his head against the pillars of the building. Something that we see then in Italian horror movies would end up being called giallos in the 70s and 80s. And I don't know if that's like necessarily what's influencing this movie, but I do think that you see a lot of influence between different European cinemas and the idea of a highly aesthetic, extremely brutal scene of murder that the audience will enjoy, to me, means something different in European cinema than it does in American cinema. I think that maybe the more American scene is the the one where she has like a complex contraption set up where she takes off her glasses Mm -hmm. and it pulls a cord that then fires a revolver that's hidden in her trench coat. That to me seems like a more American type of kill where it's like, yeah, a gadget kill. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of some bit they'd use in a dumb superhero movie or yeah. Like you said, Indiana Jones. Yeah. It does seem like a comic book or a superhero bit. We even see it. I'm going to contradict myself in a minute here, but whatever. You do see it in some of the spaghetti westerns as well. But I think that's one of the things that like migrated out of the spaghetti western into the American action movie. The sort of like cold-blooded gadget slinger. Let's talk a little bit more about the character of Mathilde. We have an interesting vision of infectious disease in this movie that's actually pretty important. She's a polio survivor and with her crippled leg is then going all around the country in the wake of the flu pandemic. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that when I first saw this movie, I did not understand why it was taking place in 1920. I got the sense that like she had waited for years until after the war and then gone out and done this search and like, why did she wait so long? 
Well, first off, the war ends in November of 1918, and realistically, almost nobody gets demobilized until 1919, right? And then you're in the depths of the worst pandemic anyone could remember. And so it makes perfect sense to, to us now watching this movie. It's like obvious, yeah. like, okay, so she waited a year. And then when she felt like she, it was safe, she went on to search for the truth. And we get that when she's interviewing one of the first people that she talks to. It's like, well, why are you here? It's like, you know, I'm, I'm recovering from the flu. So I thought that that was a sort of interesting window into this movie that I didn't get in my earlier viewings of this in a more innocent era. I was actually just talking about all that today. Grandpa was going on about polio and the pandemic. And polio continued into, what, the 50s before they finally managed to get a vaccine that worked? Is that, that correct? sounds right. No, I have one question for you. I cannot be the only one that thought the guy treating her for polio is creepy. Who's treating her for polio? The swimmer. Is it like way in the beginning of the movie? I don't remember where it is, but then he deliberately, like he could have just ignored it, but then he had to make comments on how she looked. Oh, he's like massaging her. Yeah. It's so cringily French. He's massaging her and yeah, obviously enjoying it too much and obviously (laughs) saying more than he should be saying. And then it's like, the person who's writing this movie, Jean-Pierre Genet, who adapted this along with Guillaume Laurent, then of course necessarily write in the narration that informs us that, of course, Mathilde is fantasizing about him and allows herself to do this right. and, and decides that it's okay, right? Yeah. We might ask ourselves, is this merely dudes writing a movie for Audrey Tattoo? And saying, of course, this is what we imagine that the women think of as they are massaged by the men with their strong hands, of course. Or is this, at least in a way that we can wrap our heads around, an actually genuine expression of the way that a young woman might feel in a world where she doesn't really have that many sexual outlets? And yes, she is being touched by an athletic man. You know, maybe that's not an unreasonable thing to fantasize about. No, it's not unreasonable. It makes more sense than the pain of your fiancé that's at war, you know? Yeah. It's just a matter of convenience. He's right there, you know, and he's complimenting her. I do have to say the presumably white cishet men are at it again. Um, Of course they are. They always are. Yeah. (laughs) But no, it's not unreasonable. I don't think it's unreasonable at all. I think it's highly realistic in my mind. I also think that it's like characteristically French and gross to dwell on it for no good reason. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that in an American made film. And I guess maybe I haven't watched enough film, but yeah. Like they're much more physical. It's like cheek kissing is a form of hello. Yeah, you see that all over Europe. But yeah, I mean, the French obviously have a reputation for sensuality, earned or unearned. We see with one of the couples, for instance, that we're, we're supposed to see how in love they are with each other. And they're like literally licking each other's faces. That's how much they love each other. And in an American movie, it would be like silly. In an American movie, it would be like funny that they were just like licking each other's faces and noses, but it's clearly supposed to be romantic and sweet and sensual in a very intense way, right? Mm -hmm. 
is there a disability study angle that we can take on this movie? It seems like there obviously should be. There should be. I can't speak to that. Yeah. There's some element in this movie of able-bodied people policing other people's handicaps. The kind of thing that we see in our modern world, like when people complain about, why are you parking in that spot? And then you get out of your car and you walk. Like, dude, like I realize there is a picture of a person in a wheelchair on the sign, but that doesn't mean that like everybody who's handicapped needs to Mm -hmm. be in a freaking wheelchair for them to benefit from the fact that they're not parking on the other side of the goddamn park lot and so similarly in this movie we get a lot of men talking to our protagonist Mathilde and saying to her things like you tricked me you came in a wheelchair or you're you know you're playing it up which maybe there is some amount of her trying to be deceptive at times but that also I think comes out of an experience of her knowing that people are going to you know be judging her based on her handicap and so she finds ways to make it useful. Yeah, sure, we know that she can climb up to the top of a lighthouse on her own. But like <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that every freaking day, you know? And of course, if you're traveling around Paris to get to the archives, yeah, you better bring your wheelchair because it's going to be very tiring. And maybe you want to save your strength for, yeah, that one time when you pop up out of the wheelchair and grab the box that you need with the files that you're looking for. And maybe that's a little bit deceptive, but it's not like deceptive, like I don't need this wheelchair deceptive. It's deceptive, like old man, turn around. I need to get this thing that you're obviously not going to let me see. You know, it's deceptive in the way that anyone in that situation would be deceptive. Mm -hmm. There is some sort of potential angle for understanding this film in terms of disability and understanding the character of Mathilde in terms of her disability and in terms of her, in a sense, at war with a world that was always trying to keep her down, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. As a woman, as someone with a very obvious handicap. And of course, it's about disability as well in that you have a situation in which soldiers are literally disabling themselves or handicapping themselves in order to escape from battle. Some of the examples we have are mere accidents that are swept up in the fur against self-inflicted wounds. It is interesting that there are so many different ways that they wound themselves, right? Whether that's just shooting themselves in the hand or whether it's drawing the fire of an enemy sniper as Manek does, or whether that's doing it as a team. Yeah, that one was interesting. Yep. I really appreciate that this movie does not take heroism seriously, or if it does, it has a different meaning for heroism. We even get that in the opening sequence where one of the characters is described as brave. His bravery is that he kills one of his own officers, right? The idea being that your bravery, your heroism isn't just doing what you're told to do. It's doing what makes sense in the moment, even if you know it's going to bring shit down on you, you know? And the scene that we see is an officer who's crazily demanding that his men continue to fight and probably, you know, so mentally shattered that he doesn't realize they're already dead. So he's kicking the dead bodies. And this soldier says, well, you know, I got to put this guy down. And he shoots his officer. We see a lot of scenes like this in Company K, where it's the enlisted men and the officers at the point of threatening or actually killing each other, whether that's to force the enlisted men forward or whether that's 
to resist or respond to the injustices of army life. I think that we see this more in the French tradition because the French had a very well-documented and very bad experience in this war. I think that probably conditions were just as bad with the Germans, but I don't think that as many subjective records come to mind for me immediately. That may just be because I have more experience in the French tradition than in the German tradition. I mean, people usually think of, you know, all quiet on the Western front, but all quiet on the Western front isn't talking about fragging officers usually. It's more that cynicism and loss of innocence. For me, what I liked about this movie, it was a bit different than all the other war movies I've seen, obviously, because, yeah, whatever, you include the story of a pair of lovers, but just in general, broadening the bottom-up perspective, not just focusing on, okay, these are the men that mutilated themselves and now they're in this situation, broadening that to questions of, well, what would this look like for the people at home or around these people who are also affected by this killing machine? Those are the kinds of questions that I enjoyed in this movie. Well, in comparison to Paths of Glory. In Paths of Glory, each of those characters is who they are. Each of those characters, with the exception of Colonel Dax, is defined by his experience within the military. This is the soldier who's fought in many battles and distinguished himself in combat. And now this time he just happens to be in a charge that fails. This is the soldier who's got beef with this other sergeant. And we're told a little bit about their life back before the war, basically insofar as they have beef. But what we really see is the sergeant is a coward and the corporal is just trying to get through the war and the sergeant is making life impossible for him. This is the soldier who acts weird for whatever reason. And so his commanding officer thinks there's something wrong with him. And maybe there is something wrong with him, but he doesn't deserve to die for it just because he has a weird face and doesn't seem to be taking things seriously. General Miro is defined entirely by his military service. And as I said, he's a stand-in for the whole old guard of European military aristocracy down to the fact that he has a literal saber scar on his face to suggest that he's been in the military long enough that when he was actually on the front lines in the cavalry, he was swinging a freaking sword around. I mean, there would have been guys like that. And those would have been the guys who, by the time they were up to the rank of general and ordering people around, would be ordering people into machine gun fire and quite honestly, wouldn't really have a sense of what that meant. I mean, maybe in, in the abstract sense, but not having ever really had to do such a thing. And as I said, the only exception to that is Colonel Dax, who we're told was a great defense attorney before the war, which of course ends up being important to, first off, the fact that he empathizes with his soldiers in the way that he does. And secondly, the fact that he defends them in the way that he does. But as I said, for the most part, these characters are defined as their roles within the war. And that's quite different than even that opening 10 minutes in a very long engagement where we get this character did this kind of job in this part of the country and had this relationship with this woman yeah. and had these sorts of dreams and these sorts of skills and this sort of life. And then the war just idiotically comes and fucks everything up for him and insists that he should, you know, do this or that or the other that he doesn't know how to do and he doesn't want to do, but he's got to do it. And I think that's why I liked it so much. They give their numbers, but there's so much more than that. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
what feels realistic or unrealistic about a very long engagement? There's a scene that, or a whole sequence that struck me and it kind of broke my heart. This couple, what's their names? Benjamin and Elodie can't have children of their own. And in order to get out of the war, you have to have six children and they have five. And my heart broke for them. He calls on the stoche. To mm-hmm. obviously help him to get out of this war. And obviously, that's a big ask from your wife as well. That to me was real, especially when they're sitting at the coffee table and he's like, you know, this is going to be gritty for both of us. We can just say that we did it. And she's like, no, I'm willing to do this. This is the only way, supposedly, to get my husband out of this dumbass fight. I don't think that's too far of a stretch if that's your only option what's the limits of what people are going to do. And I don't think it even matters that it doesn't work out for them. It's the fact they were both willing to do that. If I can't save myself from the terrors of this time, I'm going to try to save someone else. Yeah. Willing and at the same time hesitant, right? Right. And they knew that what they were doing could very well cause problems. Mm -hmm. They did agree to do it. And then, of course, when they did it, they also, you know, enjoyed it, which I guess that maybe in a certain sense, it would have been a happier thing if they hadn't enjoyed it, right? It seems like Elodie, played by Jodie Foster, can't hide that from Benjamin, and it tears their relationship apart as mm-hmm. he continues to ask questions rather than just letting it be. I mean, I'm tempted to say that here we get again, like, the patriarchy shooting itself in the foot, if you will, Right. That because he is a man who cannot himself procreate, he also is probably without even knowing it until he has to face it dead on in a form of subjugated status within patriarchy and then has to confront his, I guess, if you will, identity as a beta male. I don't even want to use a term like that, but that's kind of the quickest and dirtiest way to put it, you know? And looking that dead in the face in a culture that necessarily takes that as a sort of insult in a culture that's trained him to take it as an insult, even if he was the one who asked for such a thing because he could see why rationally that made sense as the thing to do, he can't handle it. And then, of course, takes it out on his wife. And that's jealousy. But is that not real? Oh, it's very real. It's extremely real. I guess that like as a man, I think it's important to like stop and look directly at how feminism helps men as well, because yeah, the patriarchy doesn't give a shit about individual men, you know, the systems that trap us don't care about us as individuals, which is what we get from both of these movies in spades, right? Were we shocked by the sentence that's handed down? I mean, I think that with a movie like Paths of Glory, which I mean, makes sense, we imagine a court-martial and a firing squad, but the idea that, oh, we're just going to send them out in the middle of no man's land and let them suffer out there. Did that surprise us? What kind of reactions do we have to that? So when they put them out into no man's land, I think that's kind of realistic because it's just a few men. They don't really give a shit about people much. They just want to win this war and get it over with. They just want to go back to their little dugouts. I think that's partially realistic, especially if they're already in this war. They're probably tired like, oh shit, I just want to get this fuckery done. All right, you go out. I don't care about you. Something I can report. Something will happen. Maybe I'll get kicked out. Maybe I won't. But at least my day is done. I'm going to go drink some wine. Bye. We're told it comes from the highest levels, though. We're told that it comes from... Yeah, we're told that there's a dispute between Pétain and Poincaré, 
about the idea of sending these soldiers over the top and into no man's land as a form of punishment. So we're told that it comes from the top down and we're even told that like the frontline commanders don't want to do this. But I do also see what you're saying that like you could see it happening as just like, ah, get these men out of my sight. And the men that are closer to them would probably be less likely to do it because they know them on a more personal level than like Ares in Wonder Woman. But it's easier if you're higher up, if you don't actually know these men, um, rich men's more poor men's fight. Right. And what we have is that they're brought into a different part of the line than they were serving in. So they're not even under commanders or in an area that they're familiar with. Yeah. But as I said, the, the commanders are not even hot to trot on this. And when we see them interacting with the other soldiers, like like the cook, the quartermaster, so on and so forth, they're like, oh, what, what do you want? What can I get for you? Like the soldiers actually have more of a sense of solidarity with these prisoners and are trying to make their lives easier. You know, they like giving them the mitten, stuff like that even though they know they need to send them out into no man's land as part of their orders. Is it less realistic to have to pick people for a court-martial just from the failure of a broad attack, as in passive glory? Or it seems more realistic to me that whether you mutilate yourself or mutilate others, well, obviously, there's direct proof of that. It's not, I wouldn't say a mob mentality, but a, a crowd mentality. Which one, in your opinion, is more realistic? Because to me, a very long engagement is more realistic. Ultimately, I think they're both realistic, but also these movies give us good examples of the limits of what we can know. We know that these kinds of things happened. What we don't always know is how often they happened or when and where they happened or sometimes to whom they happened. But we know, at least anecdotally, that these kinds of things happened. And we also know that they were allowed to happen, right? Which is probably more important to know anyway. Yeah, so you have, at least going back to the Roman army, the notion, uh, for instance, of decimation, right? If you have a unit that performs poorly in battle and brings dishonor on the empire or on the army or on the commander or whatnot, then you pick one in every 10 soldiers and the other nine kill that soldier. So when people use the word decimated, that is actually what it literally means. And from that practice, we get all manner of similar military practices of drawing lots and performing executions strictly, at least in the theoretical sense, it should be for units that mutiny, but in practice and in effect in the French army of 1917, particularly that ends up getting used for situations in which units either refuse to fight or perform extremely poorly. It's not my specific area of expertise, But it's also something that the French military has kept under wraps to a certain degree. Again, we know this happened. What we don't exactly know is how much it happened. We know that there were widespread mutinies in 1917, and there were, in certain cases, you know, refusals to fight and such before that. And we know that the 1917 mutinies were put down with some degree of brutality. Now, the French government sealed up a lot of those records for 100 years. 
So they were reopened in 2017. Now, I don't know if you know much about French work schedules. Again, this is not exactly my area of expertise, but this intersects with things that I'm interested in, so I try and keep tabs on it. But I had talked to a historian who had dealt with French archives specifically as I was finishing my dissertation in 2017. And I said to her, it's really exciting. They're going to open up the archives on the French mutinies. And there's going to be a lot of historians doing work on what exactly happened and, you know, how bad it was and what they did. We know about this stuff, but we don't have, I think, the full depth of it. And her response to me was like, they might open up those archives, but it's going to take like years and years and years for them to get through all that stuff, to figure out what they have, to catalog it. I mean, not only just realistically speaking, is that a huge amount of work to even figure out what you have, but also French government workers are going to be working on a strict schedule, not working too fast, taking two hour lunches and just like, don't fuck with me. (laughs) And, And rightfully so, you know. You can maybe see how, well, how do you get a working class that has that attitude? Well, you know, you send them off to fight enough wars and eventually it's like, no, don't fuck with me. <laughs> These are the hours during which I work. I take my two hour lunch. Know, <laughs> I did know about the two hour lunch only because I watched this French children's cartoon called Miraculous Ladybug. <laughs> the French are very serious about their language and they're very serious about their food. Everybody knows that. Like, even the main character, her parents owned a bakery. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you'd pick examples and execute them for a poorly performing unit, yes, totally realistic. The idea that you'd execute people who inflict self-inflicted wounds, yes, perfectly realistic. The idea that you'd do so by sending them into no man's land, sure, why not? Are, are Pétain and Poincaré having an argument about that from the top down and that's where the decision is made? I kind of doubt it, but maybe, I don't know. I'm not like that in the weeds of French history. If you're not at all into French history, you might need to be told that Pétain is the lead military commander in this period. He is a great hero of the First World War and a great <laughs> shitbag of the Second World War when he absolutely fucking capitulates to the Germans and then runs Vichy France as a fucking Nazi. So the guy who literally saves France in the First World War sells them out to the Germans in the Second World War. That fucker. And that's Marshal Pétain. Poincaré is the civilian leader and sort of had a reputation for being a kind of bean counter dweeb type, if I'm remembering correctly. Whatever, long-winded. They're sending soldiers over into no man's land. This is actually doing two things, too, because this trench that they're in, Bingo Crepuscule, it's suggested that this is a quiet zone. They say there's a status quo, right? Which is to say that there were certain sectors where the opposing armies would get into the habit of, well, we're not going to cause too much trouble for you. You don't cause too much trouble for us. And so the high command is actually trying to deal with two problems at the same time. They're trying to get rid of these useless soldiers and to make an example of them for the other soldiers. But also they're actually trying to provoke more of a fighting spirit along this section of the line by encouraging the Germans to shoot at these guys. Then maybe they can start something and get the French army to fight some too, right? 
because you'd have these sectors of the line. Sometimes they'd be just, you know, sitting there for years. And, and eventually, if nothing happened for long enough, people would start deciding, like, let's keep the nothing going on because I prefer not to die, you know? <laughs> and they'd even, like, throw messages over, like, yo, we're going to send out a party at this time. Don't fuck with them, and we won't fuck with the next one that you send over, you know? <laughs> And then basically, you know, it'd be until some general or higher up of some sort got some idea to do something that then the informal agreement would be broken and then they'd go back to active fighting. Yeah, until a guy just wants to pee standing up before he gets shot. Exactly, exactly. So, Bingo Crepuscule is about a hundred yards from Erlangen, which is the name of the German trench. And I kind of love the way that the French trench is notoriously idiotically named. And then the German trench is something very highfalutin. I don't necessarily know what Erlangen means, but I know from Guillaume Apollinaire's poetry that the French command were naming German trenches after writers, which is kind of interesting because he he has these lines like, we've ripped out the guts of Nietzsche, my own translation of the line, because like, I love that like double meaning that like we're destroying culture and history, but like actually he's saying that we conquered this or that trench. And then you have a French trench with a dumbass name like Bingo Crepuscule or or a morbid name, like think of the hill, I think it's in the Argonne Forest, right? Mortum. Like literally they named the hill Dead Man, mm-hmm. right? A lot of these trenches and stuff would have just like really grunt ass names that just some dude would come up with, you know? And maybe there was an official name too, but maybe people didn't actually use it or maybe people just started using whatever name had already been assigned to it. And Bingo Crepuscule is interesting. Il n'ont pas passé. They did not pass, or they have not passed, or they didn't get by, depending on how you want to translate it, is a riff on Pétain's own line, which is, they shall not pass, which you hear in any number of different weird echoes. So anybody would name anything anything, because you got to name something something. But I mean, Bingo Crepuscule, it seems like you wouldn't need to translate Bingo Crepuscule because we have those words in English, but like... I, I thought about this, like, how would I, if I had to translate it, how would I translate it? Like, what does it mean in a way that would make it sound equivalently stupid? And I decided that you'd have to say, like, jackpot sunset, like, bingo crepuscule, like, to the French who love language and love words so much, and who, like, even as late as the 60s, Jean-Paul Godard is trolling French sensibilities by naming a movie Weekend. Because, yeah, sure, people actually use the word weekend, but you're not supposed to say weekend because it's an English word and we're French and we're very proud of our language, right? The idea of naming a trench bingo crepuscule and everybody, every time it comes up, is like, that's stupid fucking name. I feel like to an American viewer, it's like, why do they care about this name? And you, you have to think that it's like something stupid, like, and this is, would be a form of translation, jackpot sunset you know and then when i think about it a little bit more it's like maybe it is a very fortunate sunset as in like if it's a quiet part of the line then you know that the germans aren't going to attack during stand two at dusk or dawn bingo crepuscule it's still stupid though stupid in a good way i'm a big Mm -hmm. fan of stupid 
I can't for the life remember other specific names of specific trenches, but they did always have names because you, if you were traveling around, you'd have to have a name for a thing to know where you were. I wonder if this is also sort of where you get early notions of Dada, of surrealism, of sort of like what you're doing, Rachel, where you just like put two words together and well, there you have it, you know, like you're coming up with password names, which again, think that'd be a thing that they'd have to do is like come up with a password name for like when somebody's sneaking close to the trench, like what can they yell at me that they know that I'm not going to shoot them, right? And you'd have to come up with some gibberish words. So if you have like, groups of people who are in the practice of coming up with gibberish words, it makes a lot of sense that you have a nonsensical artistic movement follow from that in the wake of the war. I mean, on top of the fact that nothing fucking makes sense anyway, right? (laughs) Okay, let's talk about Paths of Glory. So as I said, Miro is the old guard. He's the guy who's been in the army his whole life, and this is what he does, and this is how he identifies and. I think that in this movie, we see probably more than anywhere else that conflict between the old school of what the military is supposed to do and what the war actually looks like. He ends up ordering his artillery to fire on his own positions with the idea that like, well, this will get get him out of the trenches and then they'll be fighting, right? I guess that like, if I try and think of what the most stupid and obvious, like if we'd like downscale this, this is like whipping a horse, right? If you think of yourself as a cavalry officer, like, of course I cause pain. Pain causes people to move forward. I love the way that Kubrick deals with this. And it's like, honestly, one of my favorite super Kubrickian exchanges. You have this like back and forth over the telephone where it's like he calls in the fire to the position. The communications officer is like, those are our own trenches, like a literal game of telephone where the general is talking to his man on the phone and then the other man on the phone and then the artillery officer. And they're going through like four different people back and forth. Like, yes, those are the positions that I wanted to call in fire on. No, I can't fire on those positions. Confirm those positions. I will only fire on those positions if you give me a written order, et cetera, et cetera. And it shows like the way that people can resist within these bureaucratic structures. And also within those repetitions, it shows the sort of absurdity of the bureaucratic structures, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what Kubrick does in this movie and what he does in a lot of his movies that are about institutions is he he allows us to sort of pull back and ironize what's going on to look at it from the outside and see how silly and weird the whole situation is. It's a joke where the people in the scene are not in on the joke. They do not know that it is funny what's going on. And of course they shouldn't think that it's funny what's going on because what's going on is completely fucking horrific. But to us a step back, we can see that like, this is just like a really absurd situation where people are arguing on telephones it takes that to its logical conclusion in Dr. Strangelove where he makes it about the end of the world and then like makes it slapstick at the same time. Mm-hmm. When you watch a scene like that, do you think it's funny or is it just like, this is weird and boring? Cause it's kind of hard to tell, I suppose. I almost want to say that we have to grapple with something like what in the modernist frame we would call irony shows up in the postmodern frame that we're more familiar with as something like what we call anti-humor. Anti-humor is like, for example, playing the joke over and over and over again until it's not funny anymore. And then the Mm -hmm. fact that it's not funny makes it funny, but like on a lower down level where you're not literally laughing, right? It's just stupid. I've I've had so many 
jokes that I've made like that where people don't laugh and that makes me laugh. It yeah. was like a really bad joke. Yeah, so that's like what I would call postmodern anti-humor. And then like the modernist equivalent of that is this sort of like weird irony where it's, you might in the British idiom call it that dry humor, wit. Yeah. Where it's like, it's funny because I know we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very light thing and it's hard to put your finger on. It's all throughout that first world war literature. It's a thing that Paul Fussell focuses on throughout that great war in modern memory. I mean, I can think of several levels of this. I mean, like there is the, the sort of like irony of the situation, right? Which is that this is the way that we talk to each other and that we're distancing ourselves from something, right? So irony is a function of distance. We have like literal distance warfare and we have like distancing our emotions from what's going on. We also have an irony of that shells falling short are a problem that happen in every attack. It's mentioned as like, well, we're going to lose this certain number from shells falling short during the crawling barrage. Moreau says this to Dex as he's rolling out the statistics of how the attack will go through. And then he brings it up again later when he's trying to make up an excuse for why he went round and round with this artillery officer. He blames it on him for shells falling short, right? Mm -hmm. But then actually the irony, if you will, is that it's not a strange coincidence that the shells would be falling short. He's actually demanding that the shells fall short. He's hoping that the shells will fall short to drive the soldiers forward. And we have this artillery officer who stands up and refuses to do that and does so in a bureaucratically ironclad way. And so therefore never goes to court martial, right? Unlike the normal Walus who just end up having to draw lots for who ends up being executed. What do we think of the trial? I like actual justice. And this is just bullshit. And it's not even true. They all know it's bullshit. No, at least p let people defend themselves before the prosecutor jumps down your throat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just made me angry. And maybe it's supposed to. Oh, yeah. I think for sure. They accomplished what they set out to do. And I'm not a big fan of courtroom drama, but I think that Kubrick does this quite well. And I'm very enthused if it actually managed to make you angry, because of course you're supposed to be angry, you know? And that's why people say he's, oh, he's a great director. I can't always rely on the opinions of many, but yeah, in this instance, he made me feel something. So that's why he's supposedly great. Just like politics or anything else, you should really try to make up your own mind about things and not just follow blind. And as in proof rock, you know, oh, of course, this is written by Elliot. It obviously has to be a great poem. Well, are you just being lazy and not analyzing it for what it is then? It's a big question in terms of like literary criticism more generally. I think that we're very used to profs using this as a kind of cudgel, as a way of saying, well, this was written by Shakespeare, or this was written by mm -hmm. Elliot, or this was a Stanley Kubrick film, so therefore it must be great. Now you tell me why it's so great. By definition, every choice must be the perfect correct choice because we know that this was made by a genius. So now you can analyze every perfect correct choice and justify to yourself why it's great. It can be productive in that, like, in that kind of mental exercise, you can discover things about the text and maybe you learn why it's great. Maybe you explain to yourself why it's great, but it can also be a way of just like justifying why did I have to spend all this time on this goddamn thing? <laughs> you know? 
Uh-huh. And, and it fails to accept the fact that obviously these are made by people and obviously they're imperfect. And in some ways it's more interesting to talk about the ways that a work of art is imperfect because then we can imagine the way that it could have been done differently or that we could do it in another circumstance. But then we can envision ourselves within that space as well. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I really love about Paths of Glory as a movie and I think it's true of a lot of Kubrick stuff. It's true of a lot of, I guess, old films in general, just in terms of being fundamentally materially oriented because it's a film, but it's not a very long engagement, which is already then using plenty of CGI to fill in the gaps and to paint a picture of the past, right? It's not like Wonder Woman, right? We're just like 15 more years of CGI down the road, right? (laughs) And CGI is great and CGI is necessary and all that. There is something that Kubrick is doing very intentionally with time and with space. With Paths of Glory, I'd say it's very spatially oriented. With a movie like 2001, it's not only spatially oriented, but it's also oriented around time. I remember asking my mom about this because she saw 2001 A Space Odyssey when it came out in 1968. And I was like, what'd you think of it? And she was like, it was pretty boring. I was like, I'm so glad you told me that because now like I can tell students that like, it's not just that things move faster these days. Actually, it was boring when it came out. It was supposed to be boring. Everything takes a really long time. I don't know if you've seen this movie. Once you get into the heart of the movie, like the middle section of the movie is actually like, an excruciatingly realistic space exploration story. And by excruciatingly realistic, I mean that there are like these long sequences where they're like docking the spaceship and it's just a dude staring at a screen and beeping sounds and waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's kind of cool because it's like trying to give you a sense of what it would be like to live in that world and to have to do that thing. But it's also by definition boring, right? So we get something similar to that here. In Paths of Glory, I think it's really important how far the camera steps back from the characters when they're in those large scenes in those old regime palaces, right? In these ancien regime palaces, which have then been occupied by the revolution and the first republic, and then by the first empire, and then occupied by the restoration, and then by the second republic and the second empire, which crumbles in the Franco-Prussian War in 1871, is, is replaced by the third republic, which was intended to be a caretaker government. The Third Republic, the sort of, if you will, apotheosis of all bourgeois liberal governments that then ends up oddly being the longest lived French Republic, just as this happenstance cobbled together caretaker republic and doesn't collapse until the Second World War. And which manages, you know, against all odds to, on the one hand, save France and then not save France also. (laughs) So you have this absurdity, right? It is by definition a sort of absurdity of military hierarchy claiming to represent the people, claiming to be a republic, but in these sort of like weird cobbled together spaces that are very much 17th and 18th century aristocratic spaces being repurposed for a 20th century republic. And something as stupid as the way the people's footsteps echo matters. 
the way that people's footsteps echo as they move through those rooms gives us a sense of this is an actual room. This is an actual space, right? Just in the same sense that when you're doing that long tracking shot down the trench, you say to yourself, well, how else would you shoot a trench? Well, in a certain sense, Cooper kind of invents this. But in another sense, the fact that you have to ask yourself, well, how else would you shoot a trench is a way of being aware that this trench has two sides to it. And I'm not going to do this on a set where I just build one side of the trench and then I pop the camera way back out so I can get a medium shot. No, it's going to be right in tight and we're going to move along the thing because I actually built a trench, right? So it's sort of a function of modernist realism there. And it's a way of showing us the space. It seems super obvious, but actually it's not because there are plenty of directors who would say, yeah, well, you know, I want to move the camera a little bit further back to get a better shot. So we're only going to build half, half this trench. It would make perfect sense to do that from a movie making perspective. It's sort of in the way that people might ask themselves, why do people in sitcoms always live in such large houses? Well, maybe some of that is because the people who are making the sitcoms are from higher class level than the people who are watching them. So they have a, you know, upgraded sense of what normal is, but also it's just easier to fit all the camera equipment in there and you got to move stuff around and whatnot, you know? Yeah. Having that great disparity between the narrow, narrow trench and the big, big literal palace that's now being occupied by this Republican army is part of showing us space. And in showing us space, he's showing us reality. It's not unlike in a very long engagement where Audrey Tattoo's Mathilde is pulling down that box full of records. It's showing us history in a certain sense, right? But Kubrick does it in the opposite way. He does it in the opposite way by saying, here's the space, here's the thing that happened, playing out the whole trial, and then Colonel Dax or Kirk Douglas as Colonel Dax gives his closing argument as he paces back and forth in that space, like loud echoey clicks on the floor, camera way back as we watch him use this room, right? Reminding us that this is an actual room as he makes his argument. And I love the way he starts this. There are some times when I am embarrassed to be a human being, right? There are some times when I am ashamed to be a member of the human race. Do you remember what that speech lands on when he's listing all the indignities of the trial, all the things that are irregular and unfair and unjust about it? In the end of it, the very last thing that he lists in the list of all indignities is no stenographic record is being kept of this trial. Oh, yeah. So think, real spaces, real room, it feels like a person pacing around and giving a speech. Kubrick set everything up to show us how this space is a very highly realistic space in the way that it sounds, the way that it feels, the way that it looks. And then he reminds us that there's no written record of this proceeding. He's actually giving us a case for why fiction exists at all. He's actually giving us a case for why this movie needs to be made and why we can never really know how realistic it actually is, but it needs to exist nonetheless because it's filling in a gap in the historical record where undoubtedly there were men who went through these kinds of court martials and they intentionally didn't keep a record because they didn't want people to learn about what happened. That must have happened. Like it, it seems like a fair conjecture, right? Yeah. 
And so like as a historian or as a social studies teacher, I can see like using this movie as a way of saying like, yeah, well, the historical record is always going to leave things out and people have to make fiction to try and fill in the blanks. Yeah. Yeah. Or as someone who teaches in the humanities, you'd use this film as a way of saying like, well, this is the purpose for fiction. Like, yeah, sure. We use fiction to imagine things, but we also um, use fiction to imagine reality in ways that people in power have tried to stop us from seeing. I just could go on about this movie forever and ever. I just, I, this is like one of the best movies and it's certainly one of the best World War I movies. There's a lot of stuff with animality in here as well. The idea of like comparing the soldier to an animal, the question of like, what is the life worth? The question of how do people behave when they're threatened? The idea of a herd instinct, stuff like that. And there's lots of stuff with like hierarchy and the way that people move through the system of the military, right? Miro, who can only imagine things in terms of what works for the military is like obviously dax is trying to get one up on me when dax just like thinks that he's doing the right thing you know yeah all kinds of gross awful stuff gotta talk about paths of glory because paths of glory is like a truly great movie i mean i think that a very long engagement is a great movie but it has a happy ending and i can't i didn't like the cheesy happy ending i wish yeah they would have gone pessimistic was sort of a riff on probably unintentional riff on the big parade there only she finds him instead of him finding her right right and then it's like oh wait we're gonna end that quickly yes we're gonna end that quickly okay (laughs) quick and dirty i gotta just i just gotta get myself to the right farm if you've spent any time driving around in rural france there's a lot of i just gotta get myself to the right farm god damn and then let me just look at you ha 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 Okay, great. It doesn't have to be an optimistic ending. I don't know. Maybe it might even be more pessimistic in the book. There is a question of whether his memory is going to come back. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose if you're French, you believe in the power of love. Ugh. The power of licking faces and holding boobs. To me, that is, it does seem like a very French thing, or at least very much a French dude writing a woman thing. Maybe it's yeah. just a dude writing a woman thing, but it seems somehow very French to me, this idea of like, ah, yes, and she longs to be touched by a man. <laughs> Even though she just was, she wants it again, obviously. I mean, we could also say that in some ways it's realistic. I mean... I don't know. I can imagine, I can remember being 18 and being in love and being like, I don't want anything to separate us, you know? It is extremely romantic. As of glory. What about the ending? This German civilian who sings a song to the rowdy, horny French soldiers. Why end on that scene? What is that supposed to do? Sometimes you have brief moments of tranquility and peacefulness when you're surrounded by atrocities, but it can soon be turned back to the bad. And then the beautiful can once be horrible. And there's always a hint of horrible in something good. To me, or to my mind, it was the way that she was singing it. And also the fact that she was crying. I saw it as inescapable. And there's a couple of reasons why. The soldiers are happy at the beginning, but when the mood turns, and she switches. I remember they also kind of shift with her. And don't a couple of them start crying as well? Yeah, I think that first off, they shut up. And yeah, then they remember. start sort of humming along. And then eventually right. some of them are crying. That She wins them over. Mm-hmm. Even the supposedly happy moment or 
a moment where they revert to whatever their heterosexual tendencies is really not what it appears to be at all. Yes, they're enjoying her, but then they come to the realization is that, oh man, is there really anything different between her and I? Mm -hmm. We're captive, and obviously she's captive too. So even if this is supposed to be a happy song or a happy moment for us, that's not going to change what we're going to face tomorrow as what she's facing right now. That's what I think. I think that a lot of people would describe that scene in terms of them finding some kind of a common ground with her. I don't know if I actually like it as an ending for the movie, though. Mm-mm. Why not, Rachel? It's all so much hate and betrayal and gruesomeness and then they end with this simple moment and i feel like part of the ending could be that but then it goes to the next day and it's them getting ready to fight and then the first shot goes off and then it goes black it should end with something gruesome and horrible like the whole movie is it doesn't seem fitting for the theme just like a very long engagement you have this whole sprawling story and then the ending just feels quick and dirty At least partially. More so in the other one. I feel like Kubrick could have ended it with that awesome scene where he just tells Brulard about himself. That awesome scene where he just like, he literally tells General Brulard to go to hell. Mm-hmm. It could have ended with some awkwardness, like walking down the stairs and, you know, show his face. And like, obviously he's thinking about like, oh shit, it doesn't change anything. I got to go back to the trenches, you know? Mm-hmm. But instead, it takes him out to the bar and he witnesses this scene and then he says, I'll give him a few more minutes. It's like Kubrick's searching for some kind of a resolution when there kind of shouldn't be a resolution. I am suspicious of the scene because I feel like it kind of lets the high command off the hook a bit. Yeah. It refocuses the notion of nationalism and violence and even toxic masculinity back onto the ordinary soldier, which is not, of course, to say that it wouldn't be there, but just to say that we've been spending all this time focusing on how that operates within the hierarchical structures of the people who are pulling the strings, right? Trying to be tough enough to pull off something that you know is impossible trying to make a power play for something, trying to show off, trying to one-up somebody. And then it just sort of very quickly shrinks it down to a bunch of dudes being horny jerks Mm -hmm. and then becoming won over by this woman's song. It's too simple and also is dealing with a problem that's substantially different than the problem we were looking at for most of the film. We put it differently to say that there are kind of two levels to the iconic anti-war novel of the 20s and 30s. There's war is awful and immoral. And then there is hierarchies, specifically military hierarchies are awful and immoral. The third one that we get in some but not all of the literature is capitalism is awful and immoral. And perhaps we also get the state, but most clearly we get war and we get military hierarchy. And obviously they're wrapped up with each other, but there is a distinction that most of what this film is focused on is military hierarchy. And obviously the military hierarchy misunderstands war and obviously war is an awful thing. 
but for most of the film, it isn't necessarily dealing with the way that war corrupts at the individual level. We see a little bit of that here and there, but then to go back to this group setting of like this overall callousness, I don't know. It just seems like it shifts the purpose of the film, but maybe it's because I'm not reading it the way the Kubrick wanted me to. Listening to Professor Frank Fucile and research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homley. I'm editor Madeline McCabe. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Projects. episode is the song Sacrifice, covered by the band Melvin and originally sung by the band Flipper, and Look It Clean by the band Refused. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and on Instagram at The Pointless Century. We'll see you next time.